0: Hello and welcome to this week's Sitcom Club. Joining me this week is Boggins Trovia. Hello. How you doing? Okay, fine, thank you. First time we've heard you on the, I suppose we call this season three. This is the second time that we've come back after a break, so therefore it's the first season, so to speak. And we're discussing something today, which is, how can I put this politely? Because remember, we're in the PG era now, so there'll be no filthy, foul-mouth action from myself.
1: Well, you could almost describe it of a saucy nature.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking about the naughty little secret of British comedy in the 1970s and how it relates to the employment of everyone's favourite sitcom stars. Because we're going to be talking about, it's not a word that I like and I suspect I probably haven't even labelled the episode as such because I just, I don't like the word at all. But the word that I'm going to initially throw there is exploitation. Let's just lay things out here right from the word go. First of all, um, as I alluded to last week on the show, and actually I, I took the liberty of speaking for yourself here, Boggs, I did promise the listeners that it wouldn't just be us sitting here watching the Confessions films and going, none, none of that kind of thing, it's not like that. We're not here to tell the story about the films of the 1970s, because that's already very been very well documented and we'll give you some further reading at the end of the show. But what our focus is on today is a strange little curious period in history called the 1970s and when popular comic actors had to find work which wasn't quite in keeping with what they had normally done or what they would be doing in the 1980s and so on. It's a puzzling decade, Boggs, and of course we're both children of the 70s but we're too young to really remember the 70s firsthand. I mean, the one thing that always stands out to me about the 1970s is if I put on something like three, two, one, and I just think, I like the outfit that Ted Rogers is wearing on any given week, but I'm just looking at it thinking, I don't really know how this happened, because before then, sort of up until, say, I don't know, early sort of 1960s, gents and what have you, they're respectably suited and dressed and so on, and then when you get from the 1980s onwards, everything sort of becomes a little bit more conservative and people are dressing in varied ways, but something happened sort of late 60s to the early 80s and it's just like an explosion in a paint factory.
1: Well, you can really say it's of its time with the fashions and music and everything which goes
0: with it, and really especially with this type of genre of film as well. Okay then, Bog, so let's discuss what it is that we're actually talking about here. The set of circumstances which... I'd like this to come about.
1: They're sort of like sitcoms, but with, with a more saucy um, approach to them. And, of course, the actual people who starred in the films and who relate to sitcoms of that period and before and after as well.
0: So in this particular period, if you consider the factors that are at play here, first of all, the British film industry is in a serious funk. The American film companies are not producing as many films in Britain as they once were. The films in the 1970s, which tended to dominate uh, Hollywood and and dominate the top ten and so on, tended to be your big blockbuster films, the kind of things like, say, The Towering Infernal or Earthquake or Airport, things like that, which were large-scale disaster movies. Absolutely packed full, in a similar way actually to the films that we're going to be discussing today, packed full of famous people who didn't normally do that kind of thing. So you'd get, for example, like the passengers on the plane in the airport would be from all manner of different branches of show business as well as straight acting. Because that was what was going on. That was the work. That was what was prevalent at the time. But you've also got the cinemas themselves. They are starting to experiment with... Some gimmicks, some of which stuck, some of which didn't, like surround sound stuck, whereas actually shaking the seats during something like the earthquake didn't, obviously. So you've got this kind of stuff going on. Simultaneously, you've got the onset of colour television in the UK, which became mainstream, effectively, in 1969. And colour television now has at its disposal a full raft of big... Hollywood films from the mid-60s and so on to show in colour for the first time throughout this decade. So those two elements combined meant that the kind of films that we'd seen in Britain, I mean, I'm talking about like the kind of things like Bolton Brothers.
1: You could almost say the Ons*, even though they started in the 1950s, they sort of cheeky humour and they were perfect for seaside results when it, the weather wasn't so good. People could go in there and see a, uh, a film similar to a saucy seaside postcard humour.
0: Basically, the British film industry then was looking for popular hits and yet there wasn't a great deal of money. Initially, they were looking to the small screen, so they started to adapt the sitcoms, for example, and we're obviously going to discuss that in a future sitcom club, we're going to discuss in full the big screen transitions, but On the Buses* one of the highest-grossing films of 1971, and that was very popular with people, as you say, Boggs, it was popular with people who were in places like, say, Butlins or Pontons or whatever, and if it's raining and you need somewhere to go for an afternoon, perfect! There's the big screen adaptation of the people that you already recognise from the small screen. Along similar lines to that, In the 1970s, mid-1970s, you've got this trend for loosening of the censorship laws so the films can be a bit more explicit than they were previously and also, of course, they can take advantage of the fact that they're in the cinema so there are certain things that you couldn't do on television that you can do on the big screen. And slowly but surely, there developed this odd genre of Film, which I suppose you would say, I mean, I hesitate again to say saucy comedy because I think saucy, that sort of implies Benny Hill, who did actually transfer a series of his sketches to the big screen in 71 as well. Whereas these are, let's be honest about it, soft porn.
1: You could say that comes from, like you say, the relaxing of censorship laws and things like that. And of course with the more proliferation of more adult cinemas.
0: Now, there emerged this little niche area because if it's actually termed a pornographic film, and it's going to be in one of like the adult cinemas, then that's obviously got a stigma attached to it. It's not something that you're going to see prominently advertised, either at the venue or in the newspaper or advertised on the television or whatever it may be. So you end up then with mainly independent distributors, but one big name, Columbia Pictures, which we'll touch on shortly, identifying this sort of gap in the market where you can have what you might call x-rated carry-on films so you can have a film which is explicit sexually but it's got a ceiling in terms of what's going to be shown on the screen and added to that you've got this cast of characters who you recognize you've got all this huge list of names that you recognize from films of yesteryear or you see them in sitcoms every single week Last week, Boggs, we were speaking about Metal Mickey. Ocho and I were discussing, and we had a sort of a slight different outlook on this, but we were discussing shows which are basically a vehicle for someone or something. Say maybe, for example, like a pop group have been given their own show or whatever it may be. And then you've got a cast of supporting actors who effectively lend the show credibility by being there. And that's the role that these people that we're going to discuss today, that's the role that these people are playing in these films. If your first reaction is confessions of a window cleaner, well, that sounds like filth. And then you see, oh, Bill Maynard himself, ...off the telly... ...and there's Dandy Nichols... ...from Alf Garnet and so on... ...and slowly... ...it starts to become... ...I suppose you could say... ...more inclusive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a ready-made cast... ...you have... ...like you would have in... um, ...any sort of... ...family sitcom... ...so... ...it's already got a structure... In the
0: movie, it has. Well, let's take a look at the example, because we said that that there's a whole industry around this in the 1970s, and a lot of independent producers, I suppose you could say in some cases fly-by-night producers, were making these films. However, one big company, Columbia Pictures, got behind this phenomenon, and created the Confessions series. And that remains, I suppose you would say, not only the most successful series of its genre, but also it's effectively now shorthand. If anybody wants to describe this particular genre, they would say either confessions and then people know what you mean, or they'd say Robin Asquith films. And Robin Asquith he was he was absolutely the ideal, wasn't he? He was the ideal figure oh, yeah. for Yeah, yeah. This role.
1: Well he, he had been an a straight actor playing in drama, whereas something like it it just fell upon him other names you would consider who were asked to do the role were people like Dennis Waterman. Dennis Waterman, you could say, wasn't that well-known. You know, he'd done uh, children's film foundation movies and things like that, and he'd appeared on the television. And almost the same as Robin Nesworth, it was a, someone new. You could say that these movies actually did pay quite well for someone if considering what they would have got for appearing on uh, the television and what they could have got
0: for appearing in these films. I mean, it still surprises me when I see names crop up in these pictures, but it shouldn't do, because if you ask yourself, well, why is somebody like Chick Muddy appearing in one of these films? You might as well ask the question why was everybody appearing on chat shows in the 1980s? Why was everybody appearing on panel games from the 90s onwards? Why do people appear on Big Brother or I'm a Celebrity? No, the answer is because that's where the work is. Yeah, that's that's where the money is. So I think it's fair to say that people of the calibre of, say, Irene Handel or Bill Pertwee, Windsor Davis or Diane Langton, whoever it may be, I suspect that they would all be much happier appearing in something like a Bolting Brothers film or something that had a bit more either artistic integrity or just a bit more comedic quality to it.
1: Well, you could say that these movies got their face out there. They'd be well known. And you could almost say it was like a safety blanket for the audience. There's so-and-so. Oh, I know him from that sitcom. Oh, she was in... um. A program I saw last week. So, for the audience, they like seeing their names.
0: Let's look at an example of one such film. Let's actually look at the Confessions series itself. Columbia Pictures got behind the genre in 1974 with the Confessions series, and like we discussed, I think also as well as Dennis Waterman, I think Richard Beckinsale was offered the role as well, and turned it down. But Robin Asquith. I think that he is... The Confessions films are the only films of this genre which I actually enjoy in terms of finding them humorous. The others, to me, are a bit of a curiosity, but the Confessions films, at least the first three, I'm not keen on the last one, but the first three I find genuinely up there with... If you don't like the carry-ons, then this is a ridiculous comparison, but I find them up there with the carry-ons. Now, if you don't like the carry-ons and you don't like films of that type, then you're not going to like confessions films but if you do and you're used to particularly the carry-ons of the late 60s early 70s then this is i suppose you would say a couple of steps further in terms of what's permissible but they stick to the formula of having well-known names and also likable names and robin Asquith is a likable character the character of timothy lee he's a likable chap in all of these films
1: these were adapted novels written under the pen name of Timmy Lee by the scriptwriter Christopher Wood. I think there were four or five of these films made, but actually, of all the novels that he wrote, there were 20 of them. So there could have been a lot more films.
0: Given that this is a film which you're either going to see at the cinema, or if it's early, early 1980s, you're going to be hiring on VHS tape. In addition to having that big list of names there, which makes you feel comfortable with it, Robin Asquith's Home Life is a central part of the films, and that helps to give it a, a nice sort of warm feeling. And As much as, okay, he's getting up to his mischief, so to speak, but he comes home to his family at the end of the day, and there's a point of recognition there with the audience and so you're sort of establishing that Timmy is not a bad guy and he's not Because like, I mean whenever I've heard the expression ladies man used, it usually is in a derogatory way. It usually means, you know, that the chap isn't particularly pleasant. But you don't get that impression with Timmy. He comes home to his family which consists of Dandy Nichols, who by this point best known for is Dupart. And the father of the household is Bill Maynard, who of course round about this time, was just starting in Selwyn Frog*, and of course was already a mainstay of television, going all the way back to the 1950s, and he'd been in many of the carry-on films as well. And his brother-in-law is Anthony Booth, again, from Joe Devast Dupart. So straight away, you've got that recognition factor. You know who these people are. Okay, Bill Maynard's role is unique to the series itself, but in terms of the roles of Tony Booth and Dandy Nichols, they're really playing the roles that they're already known for on the television anyway.
1: Well, you could say that Robin Asquith's character's out there on his own, right? But all the rest of them, especially uh, Bill Maynard, Danny Nichols and Sheila White, they're, they're basically every people, if you get what I mean. Bill Maynard is a sort of father figure who would watch a telly, go down the pub, chancy cheeky, something like that. He's
0: light-fingered. He has a habit of finding things and bringing them home.
1: And Danny Nichols would be, of course, the typical sort of mother figure. Not overbearing, but homely. And, of course, they, they work perfectly.
0: One thing that we'll keep tabs on throughout this episode is the idea of people in these films effectively... I don't like to say doing the shtick. I think that sounds dismissive. It sounds derogatory. But actors appearing in these films, and if not actually in name, simply playing a role very, very similar to one that they're already associated with. There'll be a few instances of that that we'll see throughout this, but the most obvious ones in this first Confession films are, like we say, Danny Nichols and Tony Booth is... the only difference in terms of his sort of outlook is where, as his character until Death is Depart was the very left-wing socialist outlook student-type figure. He was always sort of rallying against Al for his views and so on. Apart from the fact that I suppose you could say sort of politically he's much more uh, on the other side in these films because he is sort of wannabe entrepreneur, he's always looking to make a buck and so on. But in terms of his overall demeanour, then he's identical. So again, recognition factor. It's not always the case in these films. There are a few instances of people taking on roles which aren't at all like those that they're normally associated with. But in terms of this first film, again, the idea of big names lending credibility to the film. The parents of the lady that Timmy is seeing throughout the film are played by John LeMessure and Joan Hickson. The initial film of the series, you've also got an appearance, I believe actually his last appearance on the big screen, of Richard Waters, who was best known at this time for his appearance in Sykes. You've also got a brief appearance by Brian Hall, who later on would be known as Terry the chef in Faulty Towers, but it's the second of the series where sort of the star power is really ramped up, and that is Confessions of a Pop Performer. How is this for a cast list? We have, in addition to Dandy Nichols I've been replaced by Doris Hare, who we know from On the Buses, otherwise the family unit still there. We have Bob Todd, everybody knows of course from Benny Hill Show. You have Jill Gascoigne, who will later on be best known for Police series a Gentle Touch and then Cat's Eyes. We have Peter Jones, best known around about this time for his role in The Rag Trade. From please Sir, we have Carol Hawkins and Peter Cleo. Also, you have sitcom stalwart Robert Dawning. Diane Langton, at this time she's appearing in things like the ATV Carry On Laughing TV series. We have Bill Pertwee, who is looking for his javelin. Not euphemism, he really is. And later on, as a police officer, we have Ian Lavender. And I do remember, Boggs, when we were discussing Odd Man Out before, we commented on the appearance of a particular actress who suddenly lit up the scene in an otherwise sort of modibund episode, and that was Rita Webb.
1: Yeah, it is a quite amazing film, apart from the uh, sitcom names as well. You've got people like Rula Lenska making an appearance. Dave Prowse Darth and Aiden, David yeah. Hamilton as well. Yeah. Now,
0: that was the only name I was going to touch on there because I think that in terms of, as we discussed, lending credence to the, the film and the genre and so on, David Hamilton is appearing as himself. He was one of the most famous disc jockeys in the country and also a well-known continuity announcer in London on television as well. And so... When he's there on the screen as himself, again, he is just making the audience effectively feel at home.
1: He's quite funny as well. He might only have a very uh, tiny portion of the film, just a quick on and off, but he is, just for that little period, he shows that he can do comedy, but he's sort of interacting just with Tony Booth.
0: This is a bit of a surprise, actually, Box. I've got to mention this. Just now, when I was looking up the, the cast list earlier on, I discovered, to my delight, that recently, within the last few days, the Amazon Instant Video service, which is available in the US, and in the UK has gone under the name of Love Film, it's going to rebrand in the UK as Amazon Instant Video. And they have available as a rental on their streaming TV service, Confessions of a Pop Performer, in HD! I don't know that I've ever seen Bob Todd in HD, but I am now keen to actually rectify this.
1: Well I'll give you I'll give you a warning. Having seen it on uh in S D on DVD the other day, right? All I'll say is
0: Good luck with that. One thing that we should touch upon before we move on to Confessions of Driving Instructor. Again, if you've not seen one of these films then you might be a bit confused about how we're discussing all of these well known sitcom actors. And yet earlier on we said, you know, if you're gonna give these films you know an official classification along with saying that they're comedies, you would also say that they are soft porn, hence the 18 rating. Now, you might be sort of thinking, this doesn't compute. Bob Todd? You're not serious. Bob Todd, Ian Lavender, David Hamilton. What what kind of scenes were they appearing in? Now, in just about every instance that I can think of, in any of the examples that we're going to give here, and if there's anything that runs contrary to this box, then just jump in and let me know. But... In pretty much every one of these instances, there is a very clear separation, a very clear divide in terms of the scenes in which these sitcom appear and then the scenes in which Robert Asquith and his lady friend are engaged in whatever they may be engaged in. Not necessarily in terms of fade to black, fade up, here's this scene and then fade out and fade in and now here's a comedic scene and so on, but you really don't get any of these sitcom really appearing on the screen when there's nudity, for example.
1: Yeah. The only real one in the whole thing, in Pop Performer, is Bob Todd, when he has a scene with Jill Gascoigne. I can only think that's the only scene that one of the other cast, apart from Robin with that they would appear in that way.
0: And it's a situation which may appear ill ease. It's a sort of uncomfortable bedfellow, so to speak. But certainly in the Confessions films, I think that it works. In terms of the format of the films and the fact that you've got Timmy's grounded home life throughout, then it doesn't feel jarring. I mean, when we get to the worst film ever made, Come Play With Me, later on, then we will see how badly wrong this format can go. But in terms of the Confessions films, I think that they pull off the trick very well. Now, the third... In the series, Confessions of a Driving Instructor, by this point, point, I will explain why shortly, they've actually felt the need to add a slide at the end which says, remember folks, if you see Confessions in the title, then that means it's a confession films, and if it doesn't say Confessions in the title, then you know that it's a pale imitation, because of course by this point, given the success of these films, they're a lot of copycat instances and where they tend to fall down we'll come on to that in a second but where they tend to fall down are in various elements such as the charm of the lead player or the overall feel of the film or so on but driving instructor something i want to touch on here is you've got a good example here i suppose this is not really bait and switch as such it's not false advertising it's not promising one thing and then delivering another But you're certainly entitled to feel a tad hard done by in terms of screen time for some of the players in this genre as a whole. And there's a perfect example of it in Driving Instructor. You have the appearance of Jeffrey Hughes. These days is most remembered for his last work in the Royal Family or in keeping up appearances before that. But at this time is very well known as a regular character in Coronation Street. Now He's billed in Featured Players at the beginning of the film. There's Jeffrey Hughes. In actual fact, Jeffrey Hughes, he's a postman in the film, comes into the driving instructor's office, tells George Layton a filthy joke, gives him a package, which is going to lead to a plot later on, and leaves. I think his screen time is about a minute and a half. <laughs> now, you can't then go to the box office and say, I want the price of my ticket back, because TV's Jeffrey Hughes was on there for less than the time it took me to nip out and get some popcorn. But it's the way of these things is that you do get quite a sort of heavy compression in terms of names to screen time. I suppose you could say that in terms of the production, this is applying Peter Rogers' use of off-screen talent to on-screen talent. Peter Rogers would boast that he always had the very best people working on the carry-on films. But the point was that he would produce the carry-on films in a very, very short space of time. So that's how he could afford to have the best cinematographer and the best composer and so on, because they weren't going to be shooting retake after retake after retake. They were going to do this on a strict timetable. Uh, Get in, get out, there you are. And you can say similar in this case. I mean, you've got, for example, Ballard Barkley. By this point, of course, everybody knows him as the Major in Faulty Towers. I think he's on the screen probably... I mean, certainly, if it's beyond 30 seconds, then it's pushing it. But he's a name, he's a credit at the top of the film and in the advertising and so on. So you can't say that you've been cheated because there he is. <laughs> as far as the big players in this particular film, you have Windsor Davis. At this point... In one of the hottest sitcoms of the period, a and half hot Mom. I'm not entirely sure what the thinking was behind giving Windsor Davis a Scottish accent.
1: It doesn't make any sense at all why he should have a Scottish accent. Windsor Davis has got his broad
0: Welsh accent, and it doesn't add anything. I quite like it. I, 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 am, I am absolutely puzzled as to why it's necessary because he's married to Avril Angers, and his daughter is Linda Bellingham, and they both have English accents and it's set in England and so on so I'm not quite sure why he couldn't just play as a Welshman. But for whatever reason, yeah he is the head of the Truscott School of Motoring and he's very proud of his ancestors and so on so yeah, it's a quaint little twist. (laughs) Now George Layton again is just one of those chaps who you just see across the decades, he's here, there he's everywhere and in this particular period of time he had just finished the Doctor series, and now he would have been appearing in the first couple of series of Idina Howe Hoffman with Windsor Davis. As you mentioned previously, Liz Fraser, very well known from a lot of Carry On films and from Citizen James. Sid James. Irene Handel, mentioned last week, of course. Metal Mickey. Linda Bellingham, I mentioned already.
1: Even with Driving Instructor, you've got someone like uh, John Duncan as well and Donald Hewlett. So you can think that's maybe nearly about 10 people that you would actually know and are established in sitcoms and comedies in this whole film.
0: Funnily enough, you mentioned Donald Hewlett there. You've got, again, you've got a third instance of somebody from, I didn't have Hot Mom. Now, of course, this is not by accident because at this point, in thought Hot mom started in 74. It is one of the highest rated sitcoms of its era. So, obviously, you want to tap into the success of that. That has been emulated previously as well. In the Holiday on the Buses film, for example, you have the appearance of Arthur Mullard and Queenie Watts, who were appearing in Romany e. Jones at that time. You've got them effectively appearing as the same characters, because, of course, both shows, On the Buses and Romany e. Jones, written by Ronald Chesney and Ronald Wolfe. And you've also got the appearance of Wilfred Bramble there as well, who is at that time still appearing instead of some.
1: But you can say that about all, all the rest of the films, like uh, Confessions of a Window Cleaner, you know, taking the main stars from Till Death do Part, Pop Performer, the main stars from Please Sir. They're always, in each film, they're taking the main stars from one sitcom, which would be the most popular sitcom Of that time, and saying, Right, we're going to get a couple of the major stars in our film to play various characters.
0: The other thing I was going to mention about Donald Hewlett there was that you've got two examples of him in short succession here of the, I suppose you call it, the Peter Rogers idea. He appears in carry on behind for i think about three or four minutes at the beginning and in driving instructor he's there at the very beginning and at the very end but screen time is two or three minutes max and again getting the most out of the performer being able to have a big name but not actually going over budget and so on like i say i'm not really a fan of the last film confessions from a holiday camp i think it's sort of lost its way and it's getting into sort of areas in terms of its humour which it's it's not really accustomed to and it's not really comfortable with but those first three films I think if you were going to show off this genre of film to someone then I think any one of those would, we're not saying that they're hilarious films, because they're not they're not hilarious, they're not rib tickling but in their own way I think they're quite well made I think they've also got very nice music scores, a lot of the music written by a chap by the name of Ed Welsh who was quite a prominent composer for some of the ITV stations in the 1980s.
1: And you could say that these films, um, they had money, small amounts of money, though, but money actually put towards them. And by the fourth, with indecision by Columbia Pictures, they were sort of considering whether to stay in that genre
0: I think one area where Holiday Camp also falls down, and it's, it's nobody's fault, obviously, particularly not Robin Asquith's fault, of course it can't be helped because we all get older, but Robin Asquith just in that sort of three year period, because he's not as young as he was when the films started, then I think that just his appearance, he's lost a little bit of that, that innocence about his character and I think that that sort of that comes across, I think, that, I think that manifests itself in the film. As I mentioned at the end of the Confessions of a Driving Instructor, you have this slide that says, Beware of imitations, only the Confessions films are the true episodes of the series. And what they were actually aiming at there was a series called Adventures of, directed by Stanley Long. Now, the first in the series, Adventures of a Taxi Driver, this starred Barry Evans, who is best remembered for two particular sitcom roles. His role as the young Doctor in Doctor in the House in the early 70s, and then later in the 70s, 77, 78, he was the English language teacher in Mind Your Language. I suppose that you could say that he's playing against type here because he was always very respectful, clean-cut chap in the Doctor series, whereas he's a slightly more coarse. He's a, As the name suggests, a taxi driver, and he's a bit more sort of gregarious and outgoing and so on but the thing that is quite surprising about the Stanley Long series the cast lists particularly in the first two are very impressive the main actor on screen alongside Barry Evans in Adventures of a Taxi Driver surprise surprise is Robert Lindsay now I don't think that he would necessarily be the first name that would spring to mind when you're discussing these I think the people like, for example, Bob Todd and Tommy Godfrey and so on, they're the kind of names who you more commonly associate with this genre, and they're the kind of comic actors who sort of crop up here, there, and everywhere. But Robert Lindsay, I think that's a bit of a curiosity. I mean, at this time, he was appearing in Get Some In, and then later on... I mean, he's pretty much had a seamless career in terms of then going to Citizen Smith, and then his bits and pieces on Channel 4, Nightingales, and then My Family, of course, and so on. In addition to all the straight acting that he's done, it was a real oddity the first time I actually realised that he was in this film. And alongside him is Diana Doors. We've got Ian Lavender again from Dad's Army. got Liz Fraser again. Uh, Henry McGee is there. Brian Wilde, who at this time would have been just starting in Last of the Summer Wine and already recognisable as Prison Officer Badcliffe in Potage. And Adrian Poster. Now, Boggs, Adrian Poster's a name that people might not be too familiar with now, but she was quite prolific.
1: Yeah, she would be in quite a lot of sitcoms. She was also in um, Carry On Behind with Ian Lavender. But also, she was famous for appearing in um, the 1970s uh, light entertainment show, It's Lulu.
0: Quite often appeared with Mike Yarwood in his first few series at BBC as well. I mentioned earlier on the idea of... Actors playing the role that they're most known for in sitcoms. And there is one gold-plated example of this in Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver's a rather unremarkable film, to be honest. The Stanley Long films, they are an imitation of the Confessions films, but they don't have the charm of the Confessions films.
1: because they're quite, sort of... Compared to the Confessions films, I I don't really like them. They don't have any warmth about them.
0: Exactly, yes. They feel somewhat sleazy in comparison. And I think that that key element of Timmy's home life and having the family unit there. The fact that that's missing in all three of these films, I think, is a big omission. And in terms of us identifying with the main character and actually being sympathetic with the main character, then you're sort of left with the impression that it's just basically Barry Evans or Christopher Neal later on just sort of out to have a good time, get his own way and so on. And some of the audience will identify and sympathise and a lot won't. Barry Evans, I'm sure, could play a role as nice and as charming as Robin Asquith, but in this particular film, that's not the way he's portrayed. It. It's not the direction he's given. It's
1: more like Barry Evans' character. Like you said, he's out there, have a good time, and that's the sort of main purpose of the film.
0: I think, Boggs, I think the big, big difference, and in the case of the latter two of the series, where Christopher Neill's the, the main player, I think that... They're more about the overall plot. But in terms of Taxi Driver, I think that Timmy Lee often finds himself, due to unforeseen circumstances or whatever it may be, in a scenario which then leads to a sexual situation. Whereas Barry Evans in Taxi Driver is being upfront that that is actually what he's looking for. And so I think that straight away, yeah, you've got that sort of dual impact of losing the sympathy of a lot of the audience and also the whole thing just feeling debased I mentioned earlier one about sitcom actors sort of playing their role in these films. There was one gold-plated example in Adventures of a Taxi Driver where Buddy Evans encounters Stephen Lewis as a doorman at the gentleman's club. Is it fair to say that Stephen Lewis looks as if He's Blakey, who's no longer working on the buses and is now working as a doorman at a gentleman's club.
1: Well, all it is, uh, uh, Stephen Lewis is basically playing his Blakey character without him being
0: called Blakey. He's got the same laugh, he's got the, yeah, he's ticking all the boxes. And I, mean, I sort of wish, because Stephen Lewis is principally identified as either Inspector Blakey or a smiler in Last of Summer Wine and I sort of wish that there was more of his work prominently on show because he's actually quite a versatile actor. And on those occasions when he's not asked to do Blakey, he's still very, very prominent on the screen and comes across as the character that he's portraying. He does not come across as Stephen Lewis, who is normally Blakey, who's now trying to do something else. An example of that would be the episode of One Foot in the Grave with Georgina Hale and he's just playing his own character, and the interplay between himself and Victor Meldry and so on is lovely, but he's not doing Blakey, because he doesn't have to. I sort of feel the same way about Bill Owen as well, in the fact that he's always associated with Compo, and when you see him in all of things, then you sort of think, I wish that his body of work, in terms of what gets regularly shown, was more varied. The second of the Stanley Long series of adventures I think you could argue that this has the finest cast of any of this genre. Here is your cast for Adventures of a Private Eye. And if this was a sitcom or if it was, I suppose you'd say, more mainstream cinema comedy, then I think you'd probably hear or see a lot more about it, to be honest. Your main characters are Christopher Neal, who is now, on stand, very successful music composer and producer. But Christopher Neal is in the title role of The Private Eye. Susie Kendall is his client who comes to see him, and there the plot develops. And we have a cast of Harry H. Corbett, not playing, to type, not playing Harold Steptoe, but playing this aristocrat. Diana Doors, Fred Emney, Liz Fraser, Irene Handel, Ian Lavender, Adrian Posta, Anna Quayle, Willie Rushton, Robin Stewart, who at this time would have been best known for his role as the son in His House. Veronica Doran, who at this time was known for her role in Coronation Street as on-screen partner to Jeffrey Hughes. John Pertwee, being here, there and everywhere, being Doctor Who, being Star of the Navy Lark and so on, being the carry-ons. If that wasn't enough, if all those names were not enough to drag you into the cinema to see this film, it's even got Police 5's Shaw Taylor.
1: You could say it's similar to David Hamilton. And, of course, Shaw Taylor would be most associated with Police 5, so people could believe he's would be associated with that type of thing.
0: Exactly, yeah. Don't want to disappoint anybody who's now going to rush out and buy this film because they want to see Shaw Taylor's acting debut. He's in the film for approximately three seconds and doesn't speak. But that's not the point. In terms of a cast list, that's quite incredible. I mean, I think that is, as far as the film is concerned itself, it's actually it's pretty lousy. And I think that it would even disappoint the what we might rather crudely term the Raincoat Brigade or the Dirty Mac Brigade. Because in terms of on screen sexual activity it's actually quite low down on the scale. And you've just got this lumbering along plot involving large house and there's the, the whole sort of family there and Run the Table and Christopher Neal's run after Robin Stewart and what have you. It just sort of goes on. <laughs> but as far as the castle is concerned, that's probably its peak. That's 1977. And I suppose you could say that that's when the genre... I think actually the genre was already slightly peaked by then. I think you'd probably say its peak is... Well, 76. you could
1: say that it's tipping over the edge. This was released in March 77, so... It's actually gone over its peak now, and you're only going downhill from there, really.
0: Last film in that series was Adventures of a Plumber's Mate, a curious title. That features, again, Stephen Lewis in a much more prominent role this time. Still sort of Blakey-ish. Peter Cleals we've mentioned before. Claire Davenport, again. Claire Davenport's one of those names that you don't necessarily identify by name, but if you saw her, then straight away you'd recognise her. Been in all manner of things supporting actress in many, many sitcoms and many sketch shows as well over the years. Christopher Biggins appears. Just finished his turn as lukewarm Warm and the year earlier. Arthur Mullard, quite a prominent role, and Willie Rushton. Again, I, I might as well, I don't even need to bother mentioning Willie Rushton. If, if it's one of these films, he's in it. That's a sort of rule I've established. I mean, Ocho was telling me the other day about how in all the films that he pulls off Netflix from, say, 1960s and so on, if it's a British film and it's 1960s, Frank Thornton's in it. If it's one of these films, you can bet your bottom dollar that Willie Wilson's going to turn up at some point. One name that is a bit of a surprise, again, she falls into the category of Real Lenska or Lewis Collins as somebody who is not yet well-known, Elaine Page. I think she was still a couple of years from because I think her big sort of breakout role on the stage was Evita and I think that was still a couple of years away by this point and it's just a sort of straight acting role she's a barmaid and Christopher Neil's character can fight her and so on but it's still a surprise again it's like a name that you think hang on a second this appears I, I, I you know, I sort of associate this with Robert Lindsay in Taxi Driver I'm thinking oh, is that a misprint or, or what? Now, there are far, far too many of these titles for us to go through in the space of this one podcast. There's a lot of these. I mean, we can't really emphasise that too much, can we, Box? I mean, these films were all prevalent in the 1970s. Well,
1: you could say that they sort of reached from 1970 right through to 1979. And even in a year, you'd get four or five of these films. Especially by 77, 78, 79, the market's would be overloaded. You would get so many different people producing so many different films of so much different quality, and then it's also got, where you would say, have small independent studios, and then films from the people who do certain magazines as well.
0: Yeah, we're going to come on to that one, just a second. A couple of other... <laughs> titles I want to give a brief mention to. One of them is, I would say, Bonkers. You're going to agree with me straight away, Boggs. I'm talking about the ups and downs of a Oh, handle. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That is on another planet. Bob Todd stars in there, right? His character in the film is called the Spanker.
0: It's not taxing the audience in any way, is it? I mean, it's just the character's called the Spanker. That's you. you, you yeah, you're, exactly. you're clued in.
1: Exactly. To add to it all, you've got Gay Soper, who's best known as... The voice of a flumps? <laughs> She's stripping off in the film! Talk about ruining her
0: childhood! To be fair, though, she did make this several years before the flumps. And I'm imagining, unless something's seriously amiss, then you would have seen the flumps long before you ever saw Ups and Downs of a Handyman. But I take your point that, yeah, it's sort of akin to Brian Kant suddenly turning up in one of these films, which he didn't, by the way, let me just emphasise that. The reason I mention Ups and Downs of a Handyman is... Well, two reasons, actually. One is, again, it's got a name in it that I wouldn't normally associate with these films, and I think it's his only appearance in any of them, Chick Muddy*. And he does a lovely little turn as the village policeman. He's really, really good in it. And I, yeah, like I said, the film itself is just is absolutely mad. It's bizarre, but in quite an sort of endearing way. I mean, I mentioned the other week on the show to Ocho that i have been watching Keep It Up Downstairs. That was just a pits. That was awful. I just could not wait for that film to end, honestly. Even Come Play With Me was better than that, but it's still the worst film I've ever made, though. But, obviously, there's a handy mind. Yeah, I saw that. first time I saw that would have been Channel 5. Yeah, it, it, was definitely, and, it was
1: definitely at the launch of Channel 5 in 1997. They had a whole confession series, The Adventures of uh, I think a few other varied ones as well. I mean, there was a, well, not to say an outcry. Let's say that some people weren't best pleased that Channel 5 was showing these late on a Friday night. But then again, they knew the market. People would be coming out with pubs. They would want a gut laugh.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to get publicity for the channels exactly what it was meant to do. They don't show them nowadays but they were still showing them as late as i think sort of 2004 2005 thereabouts but yeah it did their job it got them the blister that they wanted along with the football coverage and the fact that they had jean-claude van damme films on an nine o'clock and so on the last thing i want to say about ups and downs of a handyman you could say this is sort of bait and switch there is one point in the film in which valerie leon is met by harold bennett who you will remember best as young mr grace and for a fleeting moment when i saw this i thought Are we about to get a scene, in inverted commas, between Valerie Leon and young Mr Grace? Alas, we did not. We're just going to have to leave that to the imagination. A film from one year earlier, which has got a little bit of play on a couple of satellite channels within the last year or so. Can you keep it up for a week? Notable about that is, first of all, that it stars Jeremy Bullock, who you still see in bits and pieces today. We'll be talking about him in a future episode of the Sitcom Club, because later on, he appears... As, I suppose you would say, part of the first prominent gay couple in a sitcom alongside Peter Denyer from Please Sir in Agony in the late 1970s. The other thing about Can You Keep Up For A Week is that it features an appearance from Richard O'Sullivan. And this is 1974 and Richard O'Sullivan would have been at the absolute peak of his popularity and his exposure at that time. Because he'd started in Man About The House the year before which was wildly successful and getting a lot of column inches and so on. And again, it just sort of reinforces that idea about the genre for all its faults and all its bad publicity and so on being acceptable. I mean, that's akin to... I mean, who's all over the screen these days? you be talking about someone like Jimmy Carr or Alan Carr or David Mitchell or Miranda Hart or somebody like that. I'd say another one, right?
1: that you could say in this sort of whole realm would be Sex Lives of the Potato Men.
0: Yes, of course, Johnny Vegas and Mackenzie Crook.
1: And, of course, also Mark Gatiss as well. That was about, uh, well, that was early 2000s, that was.
0: I think it's fair to say that we're not really going to see any imminent revival of this genre they keep on talking about resurrecting the carry-on films and what have you just leave it it's there but, it happened but, and
1: that will, will never happen no, no i
0: don't want it to happen because the people in the carry-ons just as the people in confessions and so on most of them no longer with us and and just just leave that as an original piece and then move on do something else
1: we were talking about christopher wood earlier right he did the um Rosie Dixon series, which was the female Timmy Lee. And, of course, Rosie Dixon Night Nurse, one of the books got made. So you've got that around 1978. You've got things like a What's Up Super Doc. And even you've got Eskimo Nell with Roy Kinnear and The Playbirds with Windsor Davis, Glyn Edwards from Minder. (laughs) And I know who's coming I know who's coming Gavin Campbell (laughs) from That's Life This is the follow up to Come Play With
0: Me Well we cannot conclude this podcast without mentioning 1977's own Come Play With Me
1: Would you say it's a total nadir of the whole uh, genre?
0: It is an appalling piece of work I hesitate to call it a piece of art now, I know that my mood is slightly downbeat because I am off the Pepsi now and I'm having withdrawal symptoms. And it didn't help that on today, the very first day of me having absolutely no Pepsi whatsoever, I'm now about sort of 24 hours into this Pepsi-free diet, that I sat and watched this drivel. All I'm going to say about it is your cast is Irene Handel, Alfie Bass, Ronald Fraser, Tommy Godfrey, Bob Todd, who's in it for Bradley. Three minutes at the end. Rita Webb, Cardew Robinson, who was a radio star in the 1940s for goodness sake. I was half expecting them to just turn around and look straight at the lens and say I was in I'm Alright Jack, you know. What am I doing here? You had Norman Vaughan. I felt sorry for Norman Vaughan being in this. Telfin Thomas, Henry McGee, Queenie Watts. Now, there's three things I'm going to say about Come Play With Me. Number one. the director, who also appeared on screen, George Harrison Marks, was inebriated for much of this shoot, and for example, he didn't notice Talvin Thomas corpsing during a scene, so that stayed in. When they completed the film and they showed it to the financier, it was sent back with the request, can we put some more pornographic material in it? So, the film has about half an hour of completely unrelated material just to enable it to warrant its X rating. Number three, it is undoubtedly the most successful film of its genre. At one cinema in London, it ran consecutively for four years. It just goes to show that, no matter what I think about it, (laughs) and I've got a pretty strong constitution for this stuff, but come play with me, I have no wish to see ever again. And okay, I'm absolutely slating it, and it's nice to see people like Bob Todd and Alfie Bass and Irene Handel on screen. But as far as like a film with a narrative is concerned, or oh,
1: it hasn't, it what? hasn't got any. It hasn't. You know. The
0: narrative is that you've got two guys who are on the run because they're counterfeiters, and everything's fine in the end. That's it. <laughs> That's the end of it. They go to this hell farm in Scotland. They stay there, and they make some counterfeit notes. That's it. Sorry for the spoiler.
1: There's not much of a plot, actually, folks, to this whole film, you know.
0: To sort of put a full stop on this topic, it's unusual that you get a particular phenomenon that fits so neatly into a particular decade. There were some examples in the late 1960s of some actors appearing in films which were perhaps a little more risky than they normally would, but in terms of this actual genre, this precise classification, this is a 1970s phenomena and when the 1980s come around, it's pretty much done. And in terms of the two separate audiences, the audience who were going to see those films because they're X-rated, now have the option of getting a video recorder And then hiring tapes from local shop, and so you know they don't actually have to go to a dingy cinema and sit there in the dark and watch these films with other (coughs) like-minded men. And for the rest of us, those of us who like seeing our favourite sitcom stars, despite whatever tat it is that they're appearing in, the 1980s saw a new overall outlook on things. I mean, obviously the The onset of public awareness about sexual health and so on meant that you didn't really get so many promiscuous characters. And you can even extend that to things like the James Bond films, for example. If you compare Timothy Dalton and Living Daylights, compare that to Roger Moore 10 years earlier. it was a very different character. But as far as the sitcom stars of this era appearing in these kind of things, other avenues opened up for them. There were more... Television channels opening up. There were more chat shows. There were more panel games. Obviously, we're still making sitcoms on television, but now we've got a fourth network, Channel 4, so people like John Alderton, for example, and John Wells are making sitcoms on the fourth channel. And I suppose you could say, ultimately, sort of thankfully, this chapter comes to a nice, neat conclusion because the bit that I really do feel uneasy about is that Come Play With Me did actually have what you'd now call... R18 material shot for it and thankfully it was dropped before it was officially released. That to me would just be crossing the line if you got to a situation where you had a film that was simultaneously hardcore and also had people such as Alfie Bass and Rita Webb and Cardi Robinson in it. I think that would just be two genres that were too diverse to share screen time. I don't think that's something that Really, many people would be comfortable with. It's one thing when you're seeing somebody like Richard Waters uh, in something like the Confessions. It's it's silly, it's frothy, and so on. It's another thing entirely when it's actually a film that's been financed by a pornographic publisher it's going too far. As far as as I'm concerned, I mean, it's more than my opinion, but it's going too far to then have beloved comic actors and so on appearing in that kind of thing. And so I'm glad that it sort of just hits a a full stop there. And you can say that some sense of normality comes back. I mean, okay, 1980s are a debatable period in terms of politics and so on, but at least you can say that the prevailing material of the 1980s is rather more family-friendly. Alternative comedy aside, but that's got its own sort of niche area and so on. The films of the 1970s, the sex comedies, they are what they are, and they fit into a nice, neat slot. Uh, it's, I suppose it's quite nice that they didn't overstay their welcome. Now, Boggs, am I missing out any particularly I was going to say good, okay, I'm going to put it in italics, good titles, of all the ones we've discussed today?
1: They're pretty much much Of a muchness. Like you say, they don't have that extra ingredient of warmth at all. They're almost grey, these films, you know, without that sort of warmth.
0: Well, Boggs has been very interesting wandering down this, I suppose you'd say, alleyway of (laughs) British comedic culture. And for further reading, I think that the best piece of work on this genre... Is by Simon Sheridan and it's a book called Keeping the British End Up, Four Decades of Saucy Cinema and this guy really knows his stuff and it's it's very very comprehensive book and it's got a lot of different tales in it and so on. If you can also track it down as well Stanley Long published an autobiography a few years ago in which he described the making of the adventurous films and all the films of that ilk. Next week on the Sitcom Club, myself and DCT will be debuting the Sitcom Club Time Capsule, a new occasional format for the podcast in which we will be looking at three shows, three sitcoms, all from the same year. One BBC, one ITV and one Channel 4. To begin next week, it will be 1989. Boggs, to conclude, if somebody hasn't seen any of these films previously, would you recommend not even one film, but one specific scene from a particular film? that people should at least see, be it on YouTube, or if Channel 5 ever have a revival of interest in the genre. Well,
1: the the one scene which defines the whole genre would be from Confessions of a Window Cleaner, where Robin Esquist's character, Timmy Lee... uh, has relations with one of his clients. Some washing detergent gets knocked on the floor and their actions cause bubbles and they emerge through bubbles having done what they have. And you could say that is almost um, an iconic scene to say that it is um, cheeky but it's also funny as well. You know that Robin Asquith's character—that these situations just happen to him.
0: Okay, it's not Del Boy falling through the bar, but <laughs> it's the next best thing. And I don't think, to be honest, that it gets enough repeats. I'd like to see—I'd like to see that turn up in the next Channel Five clip show. Well, box, thank you very much indeed for your time you. today. And from myself, Mooncat, this has been a big screen version of the Second Club.